millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Good evening and welcome to the History of Alchemy podcast. My name is Travis Dell. And I'm Pete Coleman from the Bohemican podcast. So today we'll take a look at Paul of Toronto, which was, he was a 13th century Franciscan alchemist and author from southern Italy. Toronto is a city in Apulia. I wanted to take a look at him because he's one of the guys that is supposedly one of these pseudo-Geber guys. So if that's confusing to you, we did an alchemist show on Jabir al-Hayyan. And there were many more works attributed to him than he actually wrote. And this wasn't really figured out until the 19th century when people went back and looked at some Latin texts and said, wait a minute, there's no Arabic original. So some of those works got filtered out and were attributed to some guy named Pseudo-Geber because this guy was writing in Latin but uh, signed his name as Geber and then passed them off as works of Jabir ibn Hayyan. So this is one of the contestants, contenders, shall we say. Um, I'm not, we're, we're not sure he really was, but uh, the pseudo-Geber text Summa Perfectionis Magisterii could have been written by Paul of Toronto. He did write works under his own names, and uh, one of the, probably the most recognized is Theoretica et Practica, like theory and practice, um, which it defends alchemical principles by describing the theoretical and practical reasoning behind it. So 13th century, we have someone really defending it and giving ideas of uh, kind of alchemical concepts. Okay? When examining Paul's work, it is important to make a distinction from the modern definitions of words to the definitions used by medieval philosophers and scientists. For instance, the word substance. Paul doesn't use the word substance as a modern definition of material or matter. Instead, substance describes something that is primary and that can exist on its very own. Another word would be accident. Paul doesn't even use this term as an unexpected or unplanned event. Instead, it is simply an attribute or adjective that cannot exist on its own. And finally, the word form or substantial form is something that acts on matter that gives its characteristics, i.e. sort of the color, the hardness. Yeah, like an adjective somehow. Exactly. Substantial form is a fundamental type of the word form. Uh, an example to demonstrate this, substance is simply the object itself, uh, it, including the characteristics that define the object, whereas accidents simply just qualify it, uh, but are not necessarily for its, its own existence. For example, a bird could be, I don't know, considered the substance, generally combining with the characteristics such as feathers, a beak, and the ability to lay eggs, right? Describing a bird as big or small or timid or aggressive simply adds that qualification to the bird itself, but it's not defining the characteristics of the bird. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. Okay. It's, it's – yeah. He's basically – he's kind of commenting on Aristotle's work in a way. But but yeah, so I mean he's he's kind of definitely commenting on Aristotle's work. He might have done it under the name Geber, which is what gave it credence. But, but yeah, so he's just saying, okay, there's substance. There's something that exists. An accident is an attribute. And, and so on. And, and, and Travis, th- this kind of lays a uh, foundation for 
he used nature to describe his his feelings in science as well. I mean, he he would go back and forth with this. Yeah. So one thing that he argued for is that human intellect is superior to nature, and we we just kind of touched on this when we talked about yeah mm-hmm. we talked about Peter Bonus. So we we have these group of alchemists that think or actually argue for that people can mimic nature. In fact, we can do it better than nature itself. So this is, in the alchemist sense, you're saying it takes the earth a millennia to transmutate one type of metal to another type of metal. We can do it in a year. Okay, so he was arguing for this, and he was saying, therefore, humans must have the ability to manipulate nature as they see fit. Now, we come into the nature versus art debate again, but sculptures and painters, for example, use nature like marble or for statue or paint or whatever, and they create various forms of art. They manipulate those things in such a way, like chiseling a statue, you know, painting, combining colors, that kind of thing, to create artistic works. So they can, there's two sides to this coin, but he was arguing that they can actually kind of control and, and alter and improve nature. I would I would I would agree with that. I think some of the great sculptors out there, especially of classical era and post classical era, would would believe in the idea that the form is actually hid inside the marble. All you need to do is let it out. And yeah. I, and I think that's kind of what what a lot of them really believed in that sense that that they could somehow control their actions with their hands and their intellect yeah, so to, you, to let this form out. Yeah. So we're smart enough to figure out how to make gold. Is kind of the essence of what he's saying. I, I mean, I know the flip side to this argument saying that, but look, a painting is not real. No matter how good it looks, you can't reach into the painting. No matter how good you make that statue, it's never going to come to life, which means no matter how real that gold is, I mean, that was the flip side. So he was arguing that, no, we can, you know, we can, he gave art as an example, but he's saying we can, we can do it. You can make gold. Have at it. To break that down a little bit, to, to break down what his argument actually was, so he has two categories of art. There's purely artificial, and then there's kind of the intrinsic form, the perfective art. So one, you're really painting on a canvas, and the other one is you're duplicating nature better than nature could itself. So we, we've mentioned this before, but um, when people give the example, when did we mention this? On the, on the theosophy episode, I think. We're talking about the art versus nature debate. So he was saying that, look, a farmer practices perfective art, so not imitative art or, or artificial art, because they're working the transmutation, po- transmutation power inherent in seeds. So they're planting seeds. Now, nature does this naturally, but a farmer can actually do it better because he has fertilizer, he can till the soil. So th- this was his argument, and many, many that came after him used that same kind of argument, which is why we, we mentioned it before. Just to clarify, because we have the author in front of us, so he has, there's art where you're imitating nature, and then there's art where you're actually making it better than nature could do himself. Other people on the other side of the coin would say, well, no matter how good that gold is, it's not going to heal you, it, you know, because people use gold in medicine. It's not actually gold. It might look, it might pass every test, but it's not gold. And he would say, no, in fact, it's, it's actually better than gold because we made it because we're better than nature. One of the goals of Theoretica et Practica is to affirm that the validity of the sulfur-mercury theory of metals, which basically states that metals are composed of sulfur and mercury and the different uh, proportions between the two form different types of metals. He really looked into this kind of this theory of metals of the sulfur-mercury um, um, comparisons. Observations of the reactivity of metals suggest that metals were in fact composed of sulfur and mercury. When metals were heated, they gave off a sulfurous odor. Of course, we've 
we probably have known that for for centuries at this point in alchemy. Uh, the 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 uh, smell of of rotten eggs, if you will, when you're trying to break down these elements, that was pretty much known. When mercury came into contact with metals such as gold, silver, copper, tin, or lead, a mercury alloy was created. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, these observations led to the conclusion that metals were composed of both mercury and sulfur. Yeah. So, so Paul addresses one of these as many arguments against the sulfur-mercury theory, that the intermediate substances cannot exist between the pure elements and the final quote-unquote product. Yeah, so it's interesting to point out, so we, I mean, you know, we always talk about, okay, we have salts, mercury, and sulfur. And so now we have an author in front of us that kind of explains to us why we always talk about those three as the three essentials. Because they really did believe that if you break down any metal to its basic elements, you're left with kind of mercury and sulfur. Uh, but Paul, in kind of the medieval kind of scholastic method, um, he does give the, the counter-argument to, his, to what he says. So he says, okay, on one side you have empirical evidence that you smell sulfur when you heat metals, and mercury merges, you know, creates an alloy with metals. So there, that's one side of the coin. The other side is basically the argument that in order to make A from B and C, B and C become corrupted as soon as they combine to make A, okay? So B and C clearly cannot exist within A. You know, it's, does that it, make sense? It does. It, and it, well, in a sense that I, I think I appreciate more the debate class sort of measurement that we do here, that you, you debate both sides of the argument. Therefore, you can find the real truth in there someplace. Well, yeah. So he's saying you want to get the purest gold, okay? But how can you possibly be getting gold if you're mixing uh, mercury and, say, silver or mercury and copper? Okay. Because he's considering this corruption. Yeah, because how do you get two lesser materials, you mix them together, and you get something better? That doesn't make any sense, which that's pretty clever. That doesn't yeah. make much sense. He goes on to explain why that makes sense, um, because he was an alchemical writer, after all, or an al- alchemist, after all. So he would say that, stick with us, folks, um, theoretical examples and scientific experimentation. So this is this is basically what he, he tries to disprove the the... You cannot create A from B and C. So you cannot create gold from from mercury and and silver in two ways. First of all, theoretical examples, and second one is scientific experimentations. So one example is how a smaller number can exist within a larger number, okay? So if you have three, three clearly resides in the quantity four, which is three plus one, right? Sure. So a less abstract example is a live tree and a dead tree. The difference between them is simply the essence of life or is vegetative Soul, if you will. Veg- uh, I don't. Uh, vegetable soul. Really? Vegetative soul? <laughs> <laughs> this is from oh. French. <laughs> Maybe there's a translation issue from Google on this one yeah. that we have. Vegetative so, soul. Basically, yes. Yeah, the, the essence of life is, is what's missing. So the dead tree still contains the substantial form of the tree, like the wood and everything. So it's clearly that form must have been there all along, all right, even when the tree was alive, which, yeah, it was. So his experimental approach is to decompose metals into other materials and then attempt to recombine those materials into the metal again. If the sulfur-mercury theory is correct, you can decompose metals into the four elements. But when attempting to recombine the elements, there is no reasons for the elements to combine into any one particular metal. So I don't think he's saying we don't have enough control. So you break down lead. If you recombine it into lead, you're 
how do you know you're going to get gold out of it? You probably just get lead again. Now, we know in the 21st century, even the 20th century, that you can't break down lead. Lead is an element. I mean, that's pretty much all there is. But he was saying that if lead is sulfur mercury, you break it down into sulfur mercury, you build that back up, but there's no way of saying you're going to get copper next time or gold next time. But he wouldn't be an alchemist if he didn't write that he successfully recreated the same metal after a process of, and this will be familiar to you, I hope, calcinating, dissolving, subliming, and lastly, reducing the metals. Since he was able to recreate the same metal that he started with, he, de he obviously did not break it down into the pure elements, but obviously into some intermediate phase. So, I mean, there's no way for a, a medieval alchemist to find out if it's an element or not. They just, they don't know what the periodic table is. You, you can see the, so, the, the thoughts occurring here uh, mm -hmm. that, that other people that sub subsequently will, will probably build upon. But he was starting to kind of really make this idea of saying, okay, well, we're, we, we can't take this and put it into that, like in a numerical, um, you know, uh, a numerical Example that you gave me is three within four. Yeah, you know, so so he's he's seen the idea that that you can um, you know take these things down to its, its base elements, but if you put it back together again, you may not get what you expect. Yeah, one one guess might be that he started with an alloy of metals, he broke those down somehow, and then he recombined them and got that same alloy and was like, ta da! And see? before the periodic table, he wouldn't really know the the distinctions between some of these these elements. Is that correct, Travis? Oh yeah, yeah. Right. So, so he was kind of feeling in the dark for some of this stuff. But what I like about this guy is that we have a 13th century Franciscan alchemist that was clearly doing experiments in the lab and was absolutely trying to get a reproducible result. So I think that's pretty cool. I'm with you. All right. Well, thank you very much for listening. <laughs> Thanks. Take care. You've been listening to the History of Alchemy podcast with Travis Dow and Pete Coleman. For more information about this episode, other episodes, and other information about alchemy, alchemists, and related subjects, visit historyofalchemy.com. Find us on iTunes, subscribe, review, and don't forget to rate us. We'd love to hear from you. Send your comments, ideas, and corrections to podcast at historyofalchemy.com or get in touch via Facebook on the History of Alchemy podcast page or Twitter at Alchemy Podcast. Tune in to our sister podcast all about the Czech Republic, Bohemican, which is also available on iTunes or on bohemican.com. Until next time on the History of Alchemy podcast, thank you for listening. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com.